Welcome to the Sermon Podcast for Bluff City Church, Memphis, Tennessee. From about 2016 to about 2018, the American media was all kinds of confused. I don't know if you remember this era, but it was almost exhausting because almost every single day there was some new speculation about what Trump had said, what Trump was doing, and in particular, why people continued to vote for this guy and support this guy. I remember from the very beginning, from 2016 and really leading up to the elections, the thing that the media continued to be baffled about, the thing that the media continued to ask questions about was how in the world could the evangelical subset of our society vote for this guy who had been married multiple times, bragged about assaulting women, and in general did not seem like a very moral human being, right? We have people who identify as values voters, or historically had identified as the moral majority or the religious right who were voting for a man who was none of those things. And so the media was perpetually confused, and I remember feeling very exhausted, like it was every day it was something else. But I wasn't as surprised as the media was about evangelical support for Trump. I might have been surprised at the extremes of it, the intensity of it, but I wasn't necessarily surprised when the reports came out that said 81% of evangelicals had voted for Trump. There were a number of reasons for that, why I wasn't surprised. However, there was a number that did surprise me. There was a number that has stood out to me to this day, and a, a number that I think is quite telling and is much bigger than just election numbers, okay? Now, the number is going to be voting numbers, but I think it tells a much bigger story. 81% of white evangelicals voted for Donald Trump in 2016. This is notified in the red, while 19% voted for Hillary Clinton. What is super interesting is the bottom half of this graph, which represents black evangelicals. Black evangelicals tend to also be socially conservative. Black evangelicals also tend to be theologically or religiously conservative. And yet, when you look at the voting for Donald Trump, it is almost, or the voting in the 2016 election and in most elections, the numbers are almost the exact opposite. 69% of black evangelicals voted for Hillary Clinton. Now, to me, this is a much bigger story than just a single election. There is some story behind these numbers that really goes back a couple of hundred years, right? Like, to, to really get context, you have to go all the way back to the founding of this country. That said, even within the immediate framework, I think that this story tells us something, or these numbers tell us a much bigger story than just about black evangelical vote and white evangelical vote. But to understand that story particularly in light of this series, which we are doing called A Church Worth Deconstructing, where we are going to take our faith continually off the shelf to re-examine it, to re-look at it, and to ask, like, is this thing still worth following? And for many of us, 
These numbers right here, particularly the top half, for many of us, this was enough to walk away from faith permanently. Because kids raised, particularly white kids raised in evangelical homes, then saw their parents and their churches go wild after a man who represented everything against what they had preached their entire lives. And so they have realized much of their faith is just a proxy for conservative politics, for capitalism, for nationalism, and so they've walked away. The black church is largely not surprised by how the white church voted. Uh, but let's root all of this in a biblical context, okay? Because this is one of the things I want to do as we do this series called A Church Worth Deconstructing. I think one of the problems that we have is that by looking at those top numbers and everything that those numbers imply, we say, oh, those are the people who follow the Bible, and if that's what people follow the Bible do, then the Bible itself must also be a problem. And one of the things I'm trying to help us realize is there, the Bible says some weird stuff. Let's talk about those weird things, okay? I don't want to deny that the Bible says some weird stuff. However... I also think the Bible is much more radical than the tradition that many of us have been raised in. That the Bible is doing prophetic, profound, revolutionary things, things that will change our life and not just merely conform us to a certain sort of a cultural subset in American politics. So I want to root this story in a larger biblical context. This is how Paul opens 1 Corinthians. He says, The church of God that is in Corinth, to those who are made holy in Christ Jesus, called to be holy together with all those who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Now what Paul is doing here is he is tying together the idea of holiness or set-apartness or sanctity. He is tying that together with an awareness of a tradition or a community of people that is much larger than just me and people who look like me and vote like me and act like me and think like me. He says it this way, together with all those in every place, who call in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord, both their Lord and ours. Three different ways he's going to say this. Together. In every place, both their Lord and ours. I, this, this is like if you have a, you're, you like had a teacher in high school or in college who just could not stop repeating him or herself, right? This is Paul saying the same thing three different ways. To understand what I think is happening in this graph, we have to understand a refusal to see ourselves, particularly on the part of white Christians, to see ourselves as part of a larger tradition that is not American, that is not white, that is not wealthy, or even middle class. Paul is going to call the Corinthians to account for the fact that they think they and God have their own thing going and they don't owe anything to any other Christians. They don't need to hear 
from other Christians. They don't need to learn from other Christians. They don't need to feel the pain of other Christians. They don't need to listen to other Christians because they have a sort of spiritual isolation and autonomy that makes them think they're in it by themselves. In fact, this idea is so inherent to this text that every single commentary I read, every single scholastic analysis I read in preparation for the sermon pointed that direction. Let me just give you three quick examples, okay? Number one, the Corinthian church, been withering, the Corinthian church had too autonomous an attitude about what they were and did as in a church, as a church, autonomous. They thought they stood by themselves. Number two, Anthony Thistleton, who's probably one of the greatest New Testament scholars of our generation, though almost none of us would know him because nobody cares about nerds. Anthony Thistleton said, Paul is outraged by the exclusivism with which many in Corinth seek to monopolize Christ as their Lord in isolation from the experience and allegiance of other Christians. In other words, the criticism that Paul is going to bring to them is that other Christians have experiences that the Corinthians don't think are worth listening to. And then finally, apparently this one is anonymous <laughs> because I forgot to put the author on it. Just notice. Uh, but Paul chides the Corinthian Christians because of their, for their prideful presumption that their spiritual freedom liberates them from accountability toward others. The massive problems, and there are many moral problems of the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church is, is in terms of morality, it is probably the most immoral church that we encounter in the New Testament. And Paul is going to trace all of their immoralities to the fact that they have spiritually isolated themselves. They do not see themselves as part of a larger community beyond them. They do not think that that community's voice matters to them. And at every point, the white church in America, conservative and liberal, because liberal churches ain't no more desegregated than white churches. The white church in America has largely failed by doing the exact same thing as the Corinthians. Let me give you an example from Promise Keepers. You guys remember in the 1990s? This was, I became a Christian around 1997, so like the late 90s. Promise, Promise Keepers is like probably this thing of this bygone era that most people don't remember anymore. But in the 1990s, Promise Keepers was huge. It was millions of men. They would rent out, I remember, I think I attended one event in St. Louis, Missouri, and they rented out the uh, St. Louis Rams football stadium for it. Filled it up. So in the 1990s, what you had was millions of men who were pledging themselves to be better fathers, better husbands, better employees, and spiritual leaders. Now, the whole thing was rooted in patriarchy, okay? The whole thing was rooted in the assumption that men lead women and men lead children. And we could have probably told you that this, the direction this thing takes, we could have probably told you it was going to get there by the fact that from the beginning, women were saying, this is problematic. That, 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 
giving men more power in the home over women and telling women to submit unilaterally without some mutual submission is going to be ethically problematic. But these men didn't listen because they had a couple Bible verses that they could throw out and say, look, men are supposed to be the head of the home. But what they essentially did is from the very beginning, they isolated themselves from the voice of women. But as the movement grew, it also attracted black men. And now in Promise Keepers, by the mid-1990s, you have this interesting scenario where you have men being told to be spiritual leaders, but historically in America, what spiritual leadership has meant has been white men leading spiritually. So, Promise Keepers decides that it's going to talk about race. Kristen Cobez-Dumay says, Promise Keepers was one of the few white Christian organizations in the country that was willing to take on racism. Bravo, right? Like, at least they're going to talk about it. But there's a problem with how they talk about race. And the problem was demonstrated again, first, in an unwillingness to listen to women. The way Promise Keepers talks about race is this, Cobes goes, uh, Dumay goes on, framing racism as a personal failing, at times even as a mutual problem between white people and black people, Promise Keepers speaks uh, speakers routinely failed to address structural inequalities. In this way, the pursuits of racial reconciliation could end up serving as a ritual of self-redemption absolving white men of complicity and justifying the continuation of white patriarchy in the home and the nation. Several African-American pastors critiqued its unwillingness to address deeper structural questions and called out the organization for racial tokenism. So what you have here is not only women, but also many folks in the black church saying to promise keepers, listen, we're glad that you're talking about race, but you're actually doing it in a way that helps white people pat themselves on the back for not using the N-word. For having a black friend. And not at all addressing the larger structural historical happenings that come behind this. Not at all addressing voter disenfranchisement or gerrymandering in the South for the entirety of our existence since the Confederacy. None of these things were addressed by promise keepers because what they wanted was a reconciliation that was easy. Now, here's what's really interesting. In light of this comment, in light of the fact that promise keepers dealt with racism in the most shallow, whitewashed way, what Dumay says next is completely irritating. She says, some observers link the decline of promise keepers, so it's failure as an organization, the promise keepers movement to its pursuit of racial reconciliation. The focus on race was a major factor in the significant fall-off of attendance. It was simply a hard teaching for 
many. In, in other words, let, let's, let's get this. In other words, what we had is a white organ, largely white organization that talked about racism in a way that affirmed whiteness, that didn't challenge white supremacy, that didn't challenge the idea that white men should lead the nation and the homes and everything else, didn't challenge any structures, didn't ask white men really to give up any power, and yet simply, according to these observers that she notes, simply talking about racism itself ruined the organization. This only happens when our primary spirituality is formed in isolation. When literally we are so used to not hearing from people who disagree with us. When we're not used to having sacred conversations where there's an alternative voice telling us about our privilege and telling us about our assumptions behind our statements. When we are formed in spiritual isolation, this is what happens. We become so sensitive that we can't even hear the slightest, cheapest pushback. That is why I think there is a much bigger story behind those voting numbers. We are formed in spiritual isolation. That's the story. And that isolation has largely been by white choice. It is white folks who fled to the burbs after Brown versus the Board of Education. We didn't want our kids going to school with children that didn't look like them. It's historical. Like it's, it's historical facts. Is it would be interesting to me, I've never done this, it would be interesting to me to know how many of the private schools in Memphis were started within four to five years after the passing of Brown versus the Board of Education, which I think was in 64. You got a lot of them. I wonder how many of them are even willing to acknowledge that. Do you know why there aren't very many black Methodist church, United Methodist churches? Same story. Richard Allen in Philadelphia was an African-American man who was attending. Uh, uh, he was, uh, uh, he and an, a larger part of the African-American community was attending a white Methodist church and they were told they had to sit in the balcony and Richard Allen said, we're not sitting in the balcony. And so they ended up going, forming not only Mother Bethel, but, uh, which is one, the, one of the most historic black churches in America, but uh, more than that, they started the African Methodist Episcopal Church. The reason the United Methodists are lying when we call ourselves united is because we have not heard the voice of the people who are part of a larger community than us. We've never dealt with that legacy in any way that's actually structural and meaningful. Here's the reality. We can never be who we were made to be 
without the contrary voice of people who don't look like us, act like us, and always believe like us or vote like us. That's the reality. I'm not asking for some sort of token racial reconciliation here. I am asking us for us to literally commit ourselves to listening to people that our parents and our grandparents and our grandparents' grandparents refuse to listen to, let alone acknowledge their humanity. We can never be who we were created to be as long as we continue to, to refuse to listen to the voices that might say something contrary to us. Without hearing the larger tradition, without accountability, particularly in America, white accountability to people of color, without even just simply acknowledging the wounds that are there. I think Malcolm X was spot on when he was like, listen, like, not only have we been stabbed, but they're not even willing to acknowledge that they're holding a knife. So this refusal to listen is not new. This refusal to even name the problems is not new. So instead of burning books and banning books, Christians, particularly white Christians, ought to be on the front lines of saying, no, let's start reading some books. Let's start reading some books. Instead of protesting against Black Lives Matter, White Christians ought to be the first ones to say, let's look at this idea of mass incarceration and police brutality. Let's look at this information and acknowledge that something is going on here and black folks are not making it up. Instead of white guilt, I think what we should have is white gratitude. We should have some white gratitude for the fact that we are alive in this moment and we get to be the agents of change for ourselves and our own community, that we get to lead this discussion in our workplaces, that we get to lead this discussion or at least not even lead this discussion, be a part of this discussion in our city. We ought to be grateful to God for this opportunity to do what Christians have always said we should do, which is repent. I said two weeks ago, or maybe it was last week, I think it was two weeks ago, that Christians have two locations. Paul said they are in Corinth and they are in Christ. We are in Memphis and we are in Christ at the same time. To be in Christ in Memphis means that we cannot ignore the legacy of racism in Memphis. And it is our responsibility to then ask, how might Jesus have responded to that legacy? What might Jesus say if Jesus were here right now? How would Jesus engage the legacy of racism? And I think what Jesus would do is first start by listening. Listening to the wounds of the community around us. Paul is deconstructing the Corinthians' notion of racial autonomy and spiritual isolation. I think Paul would do the same with ours. I think Jesus would do the same with ours. And I think it's time we started deconstructing our own isolation.